Welcome to Mosaic Podcast. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church, Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Uh, our church exists over three gatherings, and uh, I preached at South and North uh, this morning, and uh, tonight my privilege to speak to you guys here at Dare I Touch This. Uh, uh, at High Park Headley. If you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to Matthew 28 and we're going to look at the account of the Easter story together. Matthew 28 verses 1 to 10. If you've got it on your phones, get your phones out. Uh, it'd be great because we're going to follow this through verse by verse, but it will be on the screen behind me. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for the angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has Risen. That's the great declaration of Easter. Why don't you say that with me? He has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him clasped his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Well, if you are not a Christian here today and you've been brave enough to come to this gathering, then first up, well done. It's brilliant that you're here on, I guess, what is for Christians the biggest day of the whole year. But my guess is, as you listen to that reading, there might be two things that are very problematic for you in this account of the resurrection. Number one is the fact that it includes a resurrection, Jesus rising from the dead. It's He's not a ghost, it's not a hallucination, but this is a physical resurrection, a claim by the eyewitnesses that Jesus physically came back to life. And we will come to that claim in a little bit. But I don't know if you notice the other thing that strikes me as a little bit odd in the story. And that's the presence of an angel. I don't know if you noticed that as we read through, but he appears first to the soldiers and then to the women, and then he sort of acts as a bit of a narrator through the the events of Easter Sunday. I wonder how many of you here believe in angels. Uh, Apparently, uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, a daily newspaper uh, did a interview or sort of a a survey of 2,000 people from all different walks of life. And incredibly, 25% of those people interviewed said that they believed in angels. Uh, Some of you might have friends that believe in guardian angels, that people, the sort of a, a, a spiritual being that protects them. Others of you might be aware of um, uh, people who believe that when their relatives or friends die, they go to heaven and become an angel or someone sort of who oversees or overlooks and protects uh, their lives. Um, personally, I do actually believe in the existence of angels, but um, 
I know I've probably watched too many dodgy films with dodgy angels in them. And here's a little selection of those films. And I wonder if uh, any of these spring to mind. So top left, anyone know this angel's name? What's the film? It's The Wonderful Life. It's just gone. Sorry, put on the spot there. Sorry. It's The Wonderful Life with the angel called... What's that? It's not Gabriel. I thought you said Kevin for a moment. And it's definitely not Kevin. But this is Clarence. And Clarence, he's a trainee angel and he can't swim. And he's not a very mighty angel at all. Then you've got top right. Anyone guess or can see who the actor is? John Travolta. So this is John Travolta playing uh, the angel Michael uh, in a film called Michael. And the, he plays an angel who lives in rural America with an old lady. Uh, it's a bit random. Then you've got uh, City of Angels. Anyone seen City of Angels? Is that it? Is that it? I tell you, you've not missed anything. <laughs> Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage is the worst actor ever. Can you name a good film that he's been in? No. That's not a good film. So that's not very good either. And then lastly, anyone know what this is? Doctor Who, is he? It's a weeping angel, which I think is voted like the worst baddie, the scariest thing in Doctor Who. Anyway, get all of that out of your mind. (laughs) And according to the Bible, an angel is a spirit being that's been created by God and commissioned by him for a special purpose uh, in accordance to the outworking of his plan. So they have enormous power, though it's limited as created beings. They have enormous knowledge, though limited as created beings. And they're often referred to in the Bible as messengers. Old and New Testament describing them as messengers sent to do the will of God. And particularly, they're, to, they're sent to carry out the judgment of God. And it's here that things get a little bit scary. Because it's an angel called the angel of death that sweeps through Egypt, killing the firstborn males in a single night. It's an angel that is sent to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with fire. And it's an angel, one angel that is sent overnight to kill 185,000 Assyrians who threaten Israel. So please don't be thinking John Travolta. Don't even be thinking angels are like these sort of baby cherub things with wings but rather angels bring about a response to most people they meet in the Bible that is fear, people are petrified, and people are paralysed. And it's this paralysing fear that is actually the dominant emotion in the story that we've just read. Four times, fear, or the instruction to not be afraid comes up in the text. We actually start with fear, in the story and end with an encouragement not to fear. And my question is, why is fear showing, showing up in the Easter story? Like Easter is meant to be a time of celebration, isn't it? It's a time where we celebrate the triumphant victory of Jesus Christ over death and sin. Yet this passage can't seem to get away from this fear. And my feeling is that there must be something here to learn or observe. So we're going to walk step by step through the Easter story. And I want you to go back in your minds to the scene of the resurrection. I want you to imagine a very quiet city garden. I don't know if you've ever visited a city garden, you know, in a bustling city. I've been to this place. Uh, this is in Jerusalem. Uh, it's called the Garden Tomb. And so you, in Jerusalem, it's a bustling, dusty, overcrowded uh, city 
But in the middle of it, you find this little sanctuary, this place of peace, this place where you can see the stone that would have been rolled across the entrance of the tomb. We don't know whose tomb this is, but Jesus' tomb would probably be very, very similar to this one. And I want you to imagine this place. It's a place of peace and quiet. And on Sunday morning, our story starts right here. Verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. So it's early morning. It means that no one else is around. All you can hear are the birds welcoming the dawn. There's probably dew on the grass. And literally the, the, the day is just waking up from the slumber of night. The place is calm. But the ladies in this story are anything but calm. Emotions are running high. The overwhelming feeling for the women entering this garden is sadness. You imagine for them, Jesus, that the man that they have put their hope in and followed for the last few years has been killed two days earlier. He's been whipped. Flesh has been torn off his back. He's been nailed to a cross. He's been crucified. And as he takes his last breath, a Roman soldier takes a spear and plunges it through his heart. He's then taken down from the cross and placed in a tomb belonging to Joseph uh, of Arimathea. And if you've ever been to a funeral, you will understand what these women are feeling right now. My first funeral that I, I went to was at the age of eight. It was my grandfather's funeral. And even at eight, not really taking in that much, I was very aware of being unable to escape this heaviness. This heaviness of grief that you just you want to get rid of, that churns in your stomach, but is ever present. And these two Marys carry this weight of grief into the garden. And then as they're trying to deal with that, they experience something unbelievable. First, there is an earthquake. We're not told how long the ground shakes, but Matthew says it was violent. Uh, anyone here in the room has experienced an earthquake? Yeah, a few of you. It, from all accounts, earthquakes not only are scary because obviously the, the world around you is shaking, but the noise that comes as well. And if you can remember that, if you've been in an earthquake. We actually had an earthquake here in Leeds about five years or so ago. I was living in South Leeds in the middle of the night. And me and my wife were woken up. Our bed was shaking. And it was a massive like 2.1 on the Rick's scale or something, but our bed was shaking. But what scared us was the noise of all the pipes and all the, all the bits in the house that were loose all made this huge rattling sound. Now, looking back, it's quite embarrassing because we didn't know it was an earthquake. We thought it was the Lord or an angel or something waking us up in the middle of the night and calling us to pray. So we literally like got up and we sort of spent a bit of time praying and then we went back to bed and then we saw the news in the morning and being an earthquake. So don't tell anyone about that because that's very embarrassing. So anyway, this earthquake, this violent earthquake strikes. And if that wasn't bad enough, we find the reason for the earthquake. One of God's angels has appeared on the scene. Verse 2, there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. So as the ground settles, you find the reason for the shaking is because an angel has appeared on the scene. And he takes this huge stone that would have covered the entrance of the tomb. It would have been on an angle. So the, the stone to cover the hole in the tomb would have just been rolled down like a little slipway. And this angel does the impossible and just rolls the stone back up and uncovers the tomb. 
What does this angel look like? Verse 3, his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. It's difficult to imagine, but this angel is blindingly bright. And given people's beliefs at the times of spiritual beings and their understanding of angels and the fear that would have been in the culture, the Roman soldiers cannot handle the intensity of the moment. Verse 4, the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. So these are tough hardened soldiers placed at the tomb to prevent anyone getting in, anyone getting out. Their lives would have been at risk if they had failed to do their job properly. They would have been alert, strong, ready for anything. Yet we find they are taken out of it altogether as they quake in their boots. Interestingly, the women also are quaking in their boots. They're not immune to just, you know, the sight of an angel. And so in verse 5, the angel quickly says to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Do not fear. That's it. That's The angel realizes that these women are petrified. Do not fear. Do not fret. Do not be afraid. Jesus who was crucified isn't here anymore. He's risen from the dead. And just as he promised, look, the tomb is empty. And the woman's response So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. You know, the phrase that stuck out to me this week as I meditated on the text was that wonderful way that uh, the women respond to the angel's commands. Afraid yet full of joy. Why don't you say that with me? Afraid yet full of joy. It's fascinating that they're still fearful and yet full of joy and relief. And I want to pause and and just reflect on this reaction. It's important and I think completely appropriate for anyone believing in the risen Jesus for the first time to be afraid yet full of joy. I feel like it stands for us as an example. It stands for us as to what is right when you see and face the prospect that Jesus has risen from the dead. Why? There's a very important story that needs explaining behind that reaction. So just bear with me for a moment. On Good Friday, so just a couple of days before, the day that Jesus is slaughtered on the cross, the disciples come up with a great plan. It's actually two disciples, James and John, and they speak to their mother. And their mother then approaches Jesus and says, listen, when you ascend to your throne, I want my boys to sit on your left and right. I want them to have power and influence. They think that Jesus has come to take over Rome and to kick out their oppression, the, uh, the people that oppress Israel and also to become their true king. So they're thinking glory. Jesus says this to them in Matthew 20, verse 22. You do not know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Jesus gives a really curious answer that would have taken the disciples by surprise. They ask, can we sit alongside you and share your power? And Jesus says, you've got no idea. My future involves drinking a cup that is full of the wrath of God. If you've read any uh, sort of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, or if you've seen... Uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you'll be aware of this sort of theme of the quest for the Holy Grail. Those legends surround this Holy Grail, this cup 
that was used on the Last Supper by Jesus, but also Joseph of Arimathea was supposedly used it to collect the blood that dripped from the body of Jesus on the cross. It's all a legend. But those legends all come back to this verse, Matthew 20, verse 22. You see, the Old Testament prophets spoke darkly of a connection between God's wrath and the imagery of a cup. Just to give you a couple of quick examples, Jeremiah 25, thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Then Isaiah 51 says, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord this the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And then jumping into the New Testament, Revelation 14, the angel speaks, If anyone worships the beast or its image or receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, which is just a figurative way, an artistic way of describing anyone who doesn't choose to worship Jesus, then he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And then Jesus, knowing the Old Testament, and obviously as God knowing what will be written in the book of Revelation, he joins the two together when he's in Gethsemane, just before he dies, and says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup, the cup of wrath, pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, Matthew twenty six thirty nine. The cup of God's wrath. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath, a cup that has accumulated the fury of God against sins of all types. Now, I'm not sure you came to church today expecting me to spend much time on the cup of God's wrath. I know culturally speaking, it's actually quite awkward. I'm not sure how many of you have had friends uh, conversations with friends recently about the cup of God's wrath. And the fact that their sin is adding to it. But listen, I know that our culture believes, if there is a God, believes in a God who is full of love. Who, wherever he goes, he sprinkles love everywhere. And he could never be a God who puts things right. He could never be a God who harms anyone. He could never be a God who actually does anything powerful. Because he's a God of love. And all he does is love and accept and and sprinkle love wherever he goes. But I would want to push back and say, actually, if your view of God is a God who just sprinkles love and nothing else, then it's actually detached from reality. I would suggest you cannot actually have a God of love who truly loves without him also being a God of wrath. Let me just illustrate what I mean. If you ask me, um, to go and beat someone up for you. Like say there's someone you didn't like very much, someone in your mission group or perhaps someone at work or something like that. And you came to me, Pastor, I, you know, can you do me a favour? I know it's above the call of duty, but would you go and beat them up? I would say no. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> Thankfully. I'd say no. I'd say that's just, that's not my job. Not in my job description. But it's not something that is me. That's not what I do. I, I'm, I'd be useless in a fight. I just would be bad. And, you know, I, I, I would want to be the peacemaker. I'd be the, the one wanting to talk it all through. But if that scenario was to change and you were to come and tell me that someone was harming my kids. So I've got three kids. 
if you told me that someone was hurting my kids, I would drop my pastor's hat in a moment and I would go there and sort it out. And I would use everything in my strength and my power to protect my kids. And the person who harmed my kids would know in every shape and form never, ever to do that again. And if you're a parent here, you know what I'm talking about. There's something that just rises up from within you. What's going on? What gave birth to that sort of wrath and anger in my heart? It's very simple. Love did. You see, I love these kids so much that I would do damage if you harm them. You see, love and wrath cannot be taken from one another. If you take one, you lose the other. And if God is not a God of wrath, then there is nothing he loves enough to incite his anger. I mean, that's a good line. If God is not a God of wrath, then there is nothing he loves enough to incite his anger. I know the illustration isn't perfect. I hope I never have to live it out. But you can't make God into a God of love without seeing this will mean he would also be things that he hates. And what does God hate? Well, very quickly, Romans 1 tells us he hates sin. He hates it when we think created things are more important than him, the creator. He hates our selfishness, our deception, our stealing, our greed, our idolatry, our sexual immorality. He hates that stuff. He hates it when we believe the lie over the truth of God. That means when we think we're smarter than God, when we've got arguments that put God in his place. He hates that. And he hates it when we fail to acknowledge God. If you ever want to actually get a peek of the depravity of mankind, the darkness is in, that is in our hearts, listen to the skeptic blame God for everything that is, everything bad. Blame God for everything bad and simultaneously give him no credit for anything good. Failure to acknowledge God. And because he's a God of love, he hates all these things. Because they take the people he loves away from himself. He hates sin that hurts people. And his holy anger is turned into a wine. And it's a sour wine. Which will have to be drunk by the guilty one day. By you and I. So I want to ask you, should we be fearful when we see the resurrected Jesus And the answer is, of course, we should be fearful. You see, all those that have ever sinned will be forced to drink the cup of God's punishment and wrath. Unless, unless someone would do it on their behalf. Someone who was sinless. Someone that is fully man, who could represent the whole world. Someone who would die in their place. And that is the cup. That Jesus drinks on the cross. There at Golgotha our saviour drained God's cup of burning anger down to the dregs. God poured out his wrath full strength undiluted onto his son. And 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 teaches us we wait for his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us so that he could extend the cup of God's mercy to us he drinks the wrath to extend the cup of mercy and wonderfully on easter sunday 
We celebrate the fact that not only does he do that, but he rises from the grave in order not to leave any of us wondering whether or not he was victorious. Jesus rises from the grave. He proves everything he did was in fact true and right. And that's the wonderful news of Easter. And it's here the joy that Mary experiences in the garden gets seen. Afraid, yet full of joy. If we say yes to him, if we receive salvation as a gift, if you come and acknowledge that you've wronged God and humbly accept the cup of grace, then the victory won by Jesus is applied to you. It becomes your victory. And you experience joy and life and grace and forgiveness for many of us in the room. We would say because Jesus died and then resurrected, because he was victorious and we've put our hope in that victory, we have been cleansed, we've been forgiven. All that stuff we did to add to the cup, he drank on our behalf. It's an incredible thing. You know, back in the 1850s, I was reading that doctors would start their day randomly with autopsies. So they'd look at dead bodies. And they'd work out how they died. But then they would make their way to the wards and spend much of the time delivering babies. This was during the 1850s. And even the finest hospitals, the death rates back then among young mothers was one in six. So one in six young mothers would die in childbirth. So this guy, this guy, have I got a picture of him? Rich? There he is. This is Ignace Phillips Semmelweis. And he was the first man in history to associate such examinations with the resultant infection and death of mothers. So in his own, in, in his uh, own hospital, he instigated the practice of washing with a chlorine solution. And after 11 years with the delivery of 8,537 babies, only 184 mothers lost their lives. One in 50. And so this guy spent the rest of his life lecturing and debating with his colleagues. He once argued uh, purpural fever is caused by, the de- by decomposed material conveyed to a wound. And I've shown how it can be prevented. I've proved all of that I've said. But while we talk, 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 gentlemen, women are dying. And I'm not asking anything world-shaking. I'm asking you only to wash. For God's sake, wash your hands. But virtually no one believed him. Doctors and midwives had delivered babies for thousands of years without washing. And no outspoken spoken Hungarian was going to change them now. Semmelweis died insane at the age of 47. His wash basins discarded, his colleagues laughing in his face. And this death rattle of a thousand women ringing in his ears. Easter offers an opportunity to escape spiritual death and find hope after death. Jesus has washed you clean. But you've got to believe in him to receive its effects. Just as doctors ignored the obvious, the gift of cleansing, please, this Easter, do not miss out on what God is offering. The solution to our shame, our need for a fresh start, is waiting for you this Easter. If you think there's no hope in your life, then Jesus breathes new meaning into your life through the resurrection. If you think your story is over, Jesus can turn anything around. He defeats death. 
And he looks at your life and in a moment can turn it around. If you think you're a lost cause, then you need to know we all are. If it not for the ridiculous, extravagant, saving grace of Jesus. If you feel alone, the risen Saviour is here today alive. And his promise is never will I leave you nor forsake you. In fact, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. His resurrection means that for all believers, for all time, Jesus comes to you like he comes to the women in the story and says this, verse 10, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Remember, afraid but full of joy now. Do not be afraid. What's left? Just the joy. Just the joy of our salvation. You know, when you're not a Christian, you see the resurrected Jesus afraid and full of joy. Afraid because you know you're in trouble before the Lord. Your sins separate you from him, but joy knowing that Jesus has made a way. But as you come to him, Jesus says, do not be afraid. There's no need to fear the cup because I've drunk that for you. What's left is joy. So don't be afraid. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised then living for him, doing what he says, following his will is a great delusion. We should be pitied like insane people who live by hallucinations. But since he has been raised, he is alive and reigns forever as king. And so all our obedience, all our love, all our self-denial is not just not to be pitied, but positively enviable. Paul says this, this slight momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. If the resurrection is false, we are false. If the resurrection is true, then we hold on to something so precious that all the world will envy. And look with open mouths at the gift that we have been given in Christ Jesus. God is on the move as he rises from the grave. He's alive and he specializes in making life from death. And if that is your life tonight, then we want to say to you, as we have experienced, we were dying, we were alone, and we had nothing to live for, and our lives didn't have purpose. But finding the resurrected Jesus, all those things are returned to us and more. My hope is that you do not leave today just fearful. But because drink, Jesus drinks the cup, we get to leave full of joy. And so my ask tonight is this. We don't need to be somber. If you're a Christian here today, we don't need to walk with our heads bowed down. We don't need to engage the whole Easter story doing penance. We don't need to come trying to get our hearts right. All of that gets dealt with at the cross. And Easter Sunday is the celebration of what is being achieved. Jesus has saved us from sin. Easter Sunday, Jesus has saved us for a life of worship. And so that's what I'd love us to do. In these moments now, I want us to worship. I'd love you. If you're not a Christian here today, perhaps today's the first time you're truly going to worship as you accept the fact that Jesus drank that cup on your behalf. And for the rest of us, we get to enjoy the goodness that flows from that, don't we? 